Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Don't Wake Me Up, an episode where we cover awareness, what it is, what the risk factors are, and most importantly, how to prevent it. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Awareness, or accidental awareness during general anaesthesia, is a serious topic. As anaesthetists, if we are giving general anaesthesia, it is our job to keep our patients anaesthetised for the duration of their procedure. One definition of anaesthesia is a state of drug-induced unconsciousness in which the patient neither perceives nor recalls noxious stimulation. Awareness can be defined as the explicit recall of sensory perceptions during general anaesthesia. I really want to emphasize this, awareness can and does occur, and it can have serious long-term consequences for the unfortunate patients to which it happens. So I'd like to open with some first-hand accounts from patients who have described awareness. The first account is, inadvertently a patient was given succinamethonium before induction. It was immediately recognized and anesthesia was induced. The patient experienced paralysis, was afraid they were dying from a stroke and had flashbacks for two to three days afterwards. However, the patient was reassured by the anaesthetist's immediate explanation. I know what's happening and I can fix it during the critical event and had minimal long-term sequelae. Another account is of a patient who woke up during surgery. They describe hearing two or three female voices and one male voice, felt pain and were unable to move. The patient remembers crying and thinking, if someone can see me crying, then someone can help me. They felt constant white hot fire pain in the abdomen during the surgery. These are but a few of the patient experiences that you can read in the literature with regards to awareness. I personally found it a difficult but eye-opening experience to read these testimonials and Mm. I strongly encourage you to do so if you haven't met a patient who has experienced awareness or if you are still unsure that awareness actually happens. Mm, That's great advice. One of the best resources with regards to awareness is the NAP5 report from the UK. NAP stands for National Audit Project and is conducted by the Royal College of Anaesthetists in the UK and AGB. And the fifth of these was about awareness during anaesthesia. Now, it's a lengthy report, but contains a good executive summary toward the beginning, which covers all the main points and is well worth a read. So more than 400 contacts were received from individuals wishing to report cases of awareness to the NAP5. And of these, 141 were classified as certain or probable or possible cases. So let's look at some numbers. The incidence of awareness in the NAP5 was 1 in 8,000 when neuromuscular blockade was used and 1 in 136,000 without it. In terms of surgical specialties, two of the highest risk surgical specialties were cardiothoracic anaesthesia with an incidence of 1 in 8,600 and caesarean section with an incidence of 1 in 670. Now, we do acknowledge that there is a difference in obstetric practice between the UK and Australia, and Australia in that most general anaesthetics given for caesarean section in Australia use propofol, whereas in the United Kingdom, most anaesthetists would still use thiopentone. Yeah. The cases of awareness reported to the NAP5, however, were... I quote, overwhelmingly cases of unintended awareness in patients who were unable to move because of the effects of a neuromuscular blocking drug, but who had received inadequate anaesthetic agent to produce loss of consciousness. So that's interesting. They do talk a little bit in the report about uh, a possible subset of patients who may have some sort of inherent resistance to anaesthesia, Mm. but they can't really make any firm conclusions. So in the maintenance phase of anaesthesia, there were 25% of cases in which they couldn't determine what the cause of the awareness episode was. 
Now, patient reports of awareness can vary widely from trivial rememberings to experiences akin to torture or even feeling like they are dying. Now, in the NAP5, distress was more likely to be associated with patients that were paralyzed, where 41% of patients that experienced moderate or severe longer-term sequelae were more likely to have been distressed at the time of the event. And as we know, that's strongly linked with paralysis. However, cases of early reassurance or support were often followed by really good outcomes. Yep. So in terms of when uh, the awareness occurs in the NAP5, 50% of the reports occurred at induction and half of these were during urgent or emergency anesthesia. One third occurred during maintenance and pain was more often experienced during this phase. Almost a fifth of reports occurred at emergence and most commonly caused by turning off the anaesthetic agent combined with a failure to ensure a full return of motor capacity from neuromuscular blockade. Awareness was twice as likely during TIVA as during volatile anaesthesia. In theatre, failure to deliver the intended dose, such as a tissue drip or a drip get disconnection, was an important cause of awareness during TIVA. Interestingly, many cases involved delivering TIVA without using a TCI technique, which led to inadequate dosing. And 75% of the cases of awareness during TIVA were actually considered preventable. So this, I think, gives us some lessons about where mm. we should be improving our practice oh, and uh, and learning how to, you know, do TIVA using a TCI technique safely. Mm. So overall from the NAP5, at least 75% and possibly 90% of all of the awareness cases were probably preventable by the application of existing knowledge and experience. Mm. Okay, so we'll just reiterate that possibly 90% of all awareness cases over a year in the UK were preventable. So noting that some of these were from the movement of the patient from the induction bay into the operating theatre, which is something that generally doesn't happen in Australian hospitals. Mm. So in the UK, uh, often anaesthesia will be induced in the induction bay, which we mm. still call it an induction bay, yeah. we just don't often use it as such, yeah. and then the patient will be transferred. So those cases uh, may not occur in Australia. The other interesting thing of note was that depth of anaesthesia monitoring, such as BIS or entropy, was only used in 23% of cases with TIVA and neuromuscular blockade. Now, 20% of reports of awareness followed intended sedation, which I find fascinating. And that in itself probably represents a failure in communication between anaesthetist and patient. Now, something I've certainly started doing, particularly since the NAP5 report came out, is making sure that when I'm sedating patients, they're acutely aware that hearing voices and being able to move during mm, yep. during the sed the sort of the process of sedation is actually quite normal because it's not anesthesia that's a totally different sort of anesthetic to say an appendicectomy mm. um, and there's actually a lot of patients that don't realize mm. that when they come in for a twilight anesthetic they just think they're going to be out and i'm using sort of inverted commas with my fingers mm -hmm. saying that because they just it just never occurs to them mm. that there's um, a spectrum of different sort of yeah. depths of sedation in between wide awake and under anesthetic. Yeah. I, so I always tell my, particularly in, in scopes, you know, we mm. do a lot of endoscopies and colonoscopies oh, and I tell them, you may remember seeing or hearing something drifting back to sleep, but we'll keep mm. it comfortable the whole time. Mm. And I explaining that, as you said, it's not a full general anesthetic. Mm. And also for their safety, I need to keep them breathing on their own. And most patients are very mm. accepting of that. Absolutely. So. And you're right. Once they, like you say, once they know and they're accepting of that, it's mm. many issues that you could potentially have can be be subverted alone. Now, there are some risk factors of awareness that have come about with the NAP5. These include female gender, age, where younger adults are more susceptible but not children, obesity, 
the seniority of the anaesthetist, where junior trainees are more likely to have patients that experience awareness than fully qualified anaesthetists, a previous episode of awareness, the time of day, specifically the evenings or overnight, are more sort of heavily associated with awareness, the urgency of the surgery, where emergency surgery is more susceptible for awareness than elective, the type of surgery, specifically obstetric, neurosurgical, cardiac or thoracic surgeries, the use of neuromuscular blockade, a difficult airway or obesity with a difficult airway. Now, if you've been listening closely, you'll note that many of these, many of these risk factors um, overlap in many of the cases we do. So as a consultant, I often supervise junior trainees Often we're anesthetizing in the evening or overnight. They're always emergency surgeries at that Mm -hmm. time of day. Often they require muscle relaxants. So that's something to keep very much in mind when you're working after hours or or doing anything particularly that involves the administration of muscle relaxant. So we know some of the risk factors for awareness, but uh, how can we actually prevent it? Mm. And there are several recommendations from the NAP5 with regards to the prevention of awareness. Firstly, they recommend using standard induction doses for intravenous agents. So basically using a per kilo dosing as you would have learned back in the primary. Mm. And if you're really going to deviate widely from this, you need to have justification for those deviations. Mm. They recommend that during routine induction, you verify the loss of consciousness by loss of a response to a verbal command and some simple airway manipulation. If airway management difficulties do become prolonged, you've got to remember to redose the induction agent. So Mm. I think that refers to your risk factors above is that you may give a dose of propofol, uh, give a muscle relaxant, start fiddling around with the airway, have some difficulty, Mm. but in fact the concentration of propofol in the brain, by the time you switch the volatile on, may have dropped right off and you've effectively got a gap between your induction and the maintenance phase. Yeah, and actually coming on from that as well, it's very easy to become task-focused when you're having trouble Mm. doing an airway and forgetting that, the propofol redistributes really rapidly and that patients yep. can become quite alert really, really quickly. They also recommend exercising caution when using thiopentone for RSI, particularly with regards to dosing. All patients who have less than a full motor capacity as a result of neuromuscular blockade should remain anaesthetized until this has been managed appropriately or reversed appropriately. Mm. Importantly, during emergence, they recommend speaking to patients about what is happening. So often hearing is one of the first senses to come back when patients are waking up. And some of the reports of unlikely awareness during the NAP5 were people who were being transferred onto their bed or mm. um, were in that you know, emergence phase. So reassuring them, say they're having some dressings put on and there's just touching on their abdomen, for example, I'll often start talking to my patient saying, the surgery is finished, everything is finished, it's yeah. all done, and this is what we're doing. Yeah, so. I do exactly the same thing. And mm. people think, because I often start doing it several minutes before I'm expecting them to wake up, people think I'm bonkers. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, I feel comfortable knowing that my patients are less likely to be distressed and to mm. understand that they're just waking up as opposed to aware. Yeah. So I think, you know, yes, I look completely insane, but... It's for a good cause. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and I've had patients report to me uh, cases. They, they tell me about historical cases of their anaesthetic. And when I delve into the story with them, mm. it's unlikely to have been awareness. It's just that it wasn't explained well to them or perhaps that they didn't report it at the time. Mm. Um, they also recommend that during TIVA, make sure that the cannula is visible at all times. This is a pet sort of interest of mine, which yeah. I'll talk about a little later. Yeah. They also recommend depth of anesthesia monitoring should be considered in patients undergoing TIVA when they are at a higher risk of awareness. And we'll talk a bit more about depth of anesthesia monitoring in a second as well. Now, other factors which may help prevent awareness are, well, the big thing is simple vigilance. Check your equipment. 
develop individual processes and safety checks to prevent drug error. One of the big ones is obviously substitutions, where a classic one is an accidental substitution of cafazolin instead of thiopentone. Aim for an age-adjusted MAC of greater than 0.7 and consider using end tidal agent alarms. When anesthesia is light, immediately deepen with a hypnotic agent. So the question of whether depth of anesthesia monitoring, specifically BIS, can prevent incidents of awareness has been studied extensively over the last 15 years or so. Now, the Australian Be Aware trial was published in The Lancet in 2004, and we will put a link on our website to this article. It included 2,463 high-risk patients undergoing general anesthesia with a muscle relaxant and who were randomised to either BIS-guided anesthesia or routine care. Around 40% of cases in both the routine care and BIS groups involved the use of TIVA. The conclusion of the study was that BIS monitoring reduced the risk of awareness by 82% in at-risk adults undergoing relaxant general anesthesia, which corresponds to an absolute risk reduction of 0.74%. This study wasn't without its critics. So in 2008, in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Be Unaware trial was published with the objective of comparing a BIS-guided protocol to an end-tidal anaesthetic gas-guided protocol in nearly 2,000 patients. The conclusion of the Be Unaware trial was that a structured protocol based on the BIS resulted in neither a lower incidence of anaesthesia awareness nor a reduced administration of volatile gas, um, as opposed to with a structured protocol based on the end-tidal anaesthetic gas concentration. In 2011, the BAG recall trial tested a similar hypothesis to the Be Unaware trial, but in a multi-center format. Now, once again, the results of the BAG recall trial didn't support the superiority of the BIS protocol over the end-tidal anesthetic gas concentration protocol in preventing awareness. In fact, this trial found fewer cases of awareness in the end-tidal anesthetic group. So in summary, none of these studies effectively answer the question of whether BIS reduces the incidence of awareness during a relaxant general anaesthetic in a patient population solely anesthetized with propofol as the maintenance agent. And most of my colleagues and myself mainly use BIS in this setting. Mm. So when I first read the NAP5, uh, it really not even so much changed, but cemented certain things in my practice. Yeah. I think the biggest things that stand out to me are the visibility of the cannula when mm. you're delivering TIVA. Uh, I also now set these alarms because mm. I'm sort of like, well, what's the point of monitoring something if you're actually not prepared to put an alarm? Because the biz might be zipping up to 70. Mm. And if you're distracted doing something else, drawing up drugs, writing up medications, you might yeah. miss that. So I suppose the test kind of case in which I would um, put all these factors together in terms of trying to prevent awareness would be classically laparoscopic gynecological surgery where traditionally both the arms are by the side and there are great benefits to using TIVA. Mm. Uh, it's a patient population that frequently experiences post-operative nausea and vomiting. Mm. So now what I do in these cases is I uh, have an arm across the chest um, there's oh, various ways of securing the arm and I can have a cannula in the hand. Now, even though sometimes you may not be able to actually see it, you can always feel it yeah. and it's really easily accessible. So I check it frequently yeah. and I deliver my propofol through that arm and I set my bis alarms. I use bis. Uh, mm. The only time I find it difficult to use bis in someone having a relaxant general anesthetic would be during neurosurgery yeah. when it's surgical access. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, but that's something I'm pretty set on now, and it's not just in gynae. For example, in plastic surgery, I always try to make sure that, you know, the drape just, you know, exposes the hand that I've got the cannula in and, you know, really just about this when I'm using um, muscle relaxant because we just don't have any other form of monitoring. Yeah, exactly. But I do occasionally set an entitled gas alarm as well. But it's really, yeah, those things are really cemented into my practice personally, mm. and I think they're really important. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, it's it's funny. So talking about the NAP5, I always think about uh, the time that I spent working in the United States. So for those who don't know me, I spent 12 months working in the USA as an anesthetic attending. And certainly there are obviously a lot of differences between the Australian medical system and anesthesia. Mm. But one of the biggest things that, frankly, I found quite horrifying and scary when I started working in America is that when they provide TIVA, so they don't use TCI dosing, they use weight-based dosing. Mm. They also don't routinely use any sort of EMG-style monitoring, which I actually – it was just – I mean, aside from the fact that it's obviously very different to what I've been taught in Australia, the implications of that are actually quite scary. Now, um, something that they did do, which I found quite interesting, was that often when they're giving a propofol-based anesthetic, they'll run a volatile anesthetic at about 0.2.3 mac, which, you know, they do for a couple of different reasons. One of them is that it's smooth sort of hemodynamics out. But the other thing is that it also, it's acts like a fail-safe in terms of awareness, mm-hmm. which, look, to be honest, I don't know whether these sorts of practices, you know, whether there's a lot of evidence as Mm. to how effective they are in terms of preventing awareness. But it just goes to show that whilst in Australia there are certain practices we have that we think, you know, by default everyone must use because no one could possibly do anything Mm. different. There's actually a lot of um, variation in different centres within the same country, but also with different practitioners based on their past experience, where they've worked before um, and what works well in their hands. Now... At the end of every episode, we like to talk about what we've learned in anesthesia this week. Kate, what have you learned? Well, look, this is anesthesia related, uh, <laughs> but you know, we are recording this uh, still in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic in September of 2020. And currently in our hospitals, it is compulsory to wear masks mm. pretty much at all times. Mm. And I'm finding that it is upsetting a lot of people's skin, mm. including my own. So I'm just finding a little bit of benzoyl peroxide, which is an over-the-counter topical acne medication in the evening on the affected zones can be quite effective. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I have an admission as well. So my what I learned in anesthesia this week also isn't really related to anesthesia. Um, but during a gastro list, I learned about the existence of a genetic condition called Lynch syndrome, which has absolutely no anesthetic implication whatsoever. But these patients, um, so it's an autosomal dominant, I believe, genetic condition where you get accelerated development of malignancy from polyps. These patients don't develop more polyps than the normal person, but instead of malignancy developing over three to five years, they get accelerated development over about 18 months. So these poor buggers have to have colon prep and a scope every single year. Oh dear. Mm. All right. Well, today's episode of Deep Breaths has covered a serious but important topic. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you could spread the word to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and even review us. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.